many of my friends who are generalists are probably better surgeons than I am. I guess I don't understand what the the kind of it's almost a perseveration of OBGYN, OBGYN, upscaling OBGYN. Why is that? Because we have 90% of the market without cover. We have 90% of the market but that is not covered. Okay, so let's talk, why are they not covered? Why? Because A, lack of access financially, B, okay. lack, of, lack of competition because we don't produce enough REIs, and our boards have for 20 years spoke with both houses of their mouth saying that they wouldn't increase access and they have not done it because we have not produced more REIs because there is access to care. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Can OBGYNs do IVF egg retrievals? Are you good with that? Are you okay with that? You disagree. You, the Inside Reproductive Health audience, disagree on if non-REI fellowship trained OBGYNs can do IVF egg retrievals or not. This is one of the things that we talk about today with my guest, Dr. Anat Brower and Dr. Francisco Arredondo. We try to get down to the exact point that they disagree on and really zoom in on what they think OBGYNs that are not RAI fellowship trained can do and can't do. There's a whole bunch of things that pile into this access to care argument. And I try to piece them out and I try to elucidate, okay, what's the exact point that you disagree? And I think we found that as well as we talk about the duopoly, the duopoly of the pharmaceutical manufacturers. We talk about the shortage of embryologists. Is that need even greater of a bottleneck than the shortage of REIs? We talk about expanding fellowship programs, which is never going to friggin' happen from my vantage point. Maybe I'm being cynical, but Dr. Brown promises to get me somebody that can walk us through that in a podcast episode. And I think these are two of the people to do it. It's a bit of a continuation from the debate that I had with Dr. John Stormont and Tracy Keene, the CEO of Meat Fertility. Both Dr. Brow and Dr. Arnando had listened to that episode as well as some others and felt that they had something to offer. And I think they both did have something to offer. Dr. Brower is, of course, with Shady Grove Fertility in New York. She's fellowship trained from Cornell, which is a very esteemed fellowship program. And Dr. Arredondo is the medicalpreneur. He's going to be on a different episode to talk about that. There are initiatives that he was involved in, including the foundation that he talks about in this episode, that I didn't even know at the time of booking. I also didn't know that he sits on the board for mate fertility. And so I feel that should be disclosed. It wasn't disclosed in the conversation. And so I'm disclosing that here. But I feel that both parties really spoke what they truly believe. And, and they both make strong cases for what they believe in. 
the shout out for today's episode is going to go to Dr. Matt Retzloff. I'm sorry, friend. I probably butchered the study that you were recommending that would give us better data on making decisions about the quality of care. So Dr. Retzloff, if you want to come on the show and spend the entire time talking about what you recommend, I promise to let you to do justice for you there. So I can't make this debate. I'm not a clinician. We have two good clinicians on here who disagree. You analyze their motives. You do all the psychological analysis that you want, but you tell me, who do you agree with? Who, who do you think is right in this context? And what are we missing, if anything? Enjoy this discussion with Dr. Anat Brower and Dr. Francisco Arredondo. Dr. Arredondo, Paco, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health. Dr. Brower, Anat, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank so, you so much for having me. Dr. Arredondo has been on twice before. And part of the reason why you have Dr. Brower is because I have had probably four or five people from Shady Grove on at this point, and I'm going to be (laughs) accused of playing favorites, but now I'm going to be accused of playing favorites with Paco too, because this is his third time on the show. He's going to come back on for a fourth because he's got a new book, Medicalpreneur, that once I get finished reading that, he and I are going to, to, to go over that. But you're both on because you each had some points of view on an earlier episode a couple earlier episodes that I've done. One you know, started off with Mate Fertility, and that got people talking. Then we had the CEO of Mate Fertility on to talk with Dr. John Stormont. Even before that episode aired, and you shared with me that you had concerns about what the REI, about taking things out of the REI purview and what that means. Paco, you had points after that came out where you felt like that there needed to be a physician arguing for the side of upskilling or training OBGYNs outside of fellowship. But let's start with your concerns, not and just what was the concern that you had when you listened to that first episode or just in general about the issue? Sure. So I think my background is I, I trained at Cornell, which I realize is in New York City where there are 22 other IVF centers and there is a lot of access to care. So I understand that we're coming at this from different perspectives. But my fellowship director, Dr. Roselak, always said to us from the time I was a first year fellow that our field of medicine, more than any other field of medicine, has the potential to change society as we know it, right? For better or for worse. And I think that fact comes with huge responsibility and liability. And so it's a big undertaking. And one of the hardest things that we'll talk about kind of bottlenecks to access, because that's a big part of this discussion. But one of the hardest things I do is counsel patients, not just do procedures, but also counsel patients on very complicated endocrine issues that have to do with conceiving, recurrent failures and other things that we'll get into. And I don't feel like I would be equipped to treat the patients with the level that they should be treated if I didn't have the training that I had. So it does concern me, this idea of standardization of care as the CEO of, of MATE stated that, said that those words multiple times. Because each case is individual and all of the training that we've received and experience that we've had, I think, helps us get that individual patient to their goal of competing safely. And so that's my concern. Here in New York, by the way, 
what prompted my conversations about this and actually what prompted my interest in being on the SART QA committee, which I'm now on, is seeing chart after chart of complications of IVF cycle overseen by general OBGYNs who have not been properly trained who are working for some of these companies that are looking now to scale very quickly. And so that's what kind of prompted this concern in me. So there you have it. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. I took a couple notes on, on two different points you made, one about fellows and then another about the complications that you've seen. But Paco, when you reached out to me and just said, there needs to be a doctor arguing, there needs to be an REI arguing for the case of training OBGYNs outside of fellowship. What did you mean by that? And if I'm paraphrasing correctly. Oh, no, no, yes. I uh, thank you once more for having us. Thank you to not to be willing to do mental gymnastics here. So I would like to set three things straight before we enter into any debate. And one of them is that debates, in my view, are not to be won or lost. Debates are to be learned from. That's the first thing I want to state. The second one is that if we agree in the context here that we believe both sides, that human reproduction is a universal right. That's the other thing that I want to set as a context because everything else evolves from there. And the third thing is that <clears throat> there is a difference between clinical medicine and health policy that we as physicians at the clinical level, we use sometimes, not always, treated at the same. And there are very different interests in individual care versus health policy. And when we have 90% of the needs of the fertility unmet in this country, then is when I do argue that we have to think of different models of providing care. And among them, we have to explore the possibility to utilize every one of us at the top of our licenses. So that's basically what I meant. And I would start by saying that it is not my intention ever to replace REIs with OBGYNs ever, but we have to learn from other places, even within our special, let's go to fetal maternal medicine. The fetal maternal medicine, which are high-risk deliveries and high-risk pregnancies, those guys do not do one single delivery. All the deliveries are done by OBGYNs. They basically handle themselves at the top of the license by managing different pregnancies, recommending guidelines, recommending course of actions and are executed by OBGYNs. Anesthesiologists, the only way they run five ORs at the same time is by having extensors like CRNAs. Radiologists, they don't do every single x-ray. In fact, they just sit and read the x-rays that the technicians and other people run healthcare. Otherwise, if we have a potential market of 3 million IBF cycles in the United States, and we are currently doing 300 cycles. 
even if you crank the production of REIs, we will never have all the REIs doing every single egg retrieval that is out there. So my argument is, and this is the argument of our nonprofit, which is called university, to train people to do other tasks that physicians are doing or nurses are doing that can be done by different people at the top of the license. That is there. I want to let Dr. Brower an, an, analyze that in a moment. I want you to start, though, Paco, with what is the limit of what the REI can. So if the REI needs to practice at the top of their license, what is the limit to what can be done outside of fellowship training? Yeah. So I think I would approach it gradually the other way. It is, there is no question that an OBGYN and a nurse practitioner or a PA with good guidelines should be able to do every single diagnostic step of the fertility patient. Number two, I think that doing an egg retrieval, for example, I would not give it to a nurse practitioner or to a physician assistant because they are not capable of resolving a complication, bleeding, etc. But an OBGYN absolutely can do an egg retrieval. There is no reason why an OBGYN can, let's put it this way. In the last week, I spoke with probably 20 different fellows. The other fellows out there that are coming out doing 10 egg retrievals in their whole fellowship, that is still to this day, they are reproductive endocrinologists that come out of fellowship without with zero embryo transfers, zero embryo transfers. This is an issue. Write that down, Griffin, because that's something that should definitely be touched upon regarding fellowship programs. Yeah. So, so I, I am writing that down. I want to continue, Paco, with so, so I, I'm saying the diagnostic process, OBGYNs can do egg retrievals. What else? Currently, yeah. we're doing IUIs, playing IUIs in the OBGYN office. And I think that there's no reason why they would not be able to do IUIs. And again, all under the supervision of a fertility specialist. Now you will have control of or, or, or guide several OBGYNs. And there is a difference between what we call improvement in quality and innovation, because the requirements for improving on quality are exactly the opposite to innovation. Quality requires consistency, repetition, precision, standardization, because quality, the enemy of quality is variability. So that is what is required for improving quality. However, for innovation, you actually require the opposite. You require failure, variation, and serendipity. So we have to be able to dance this delicate dance between improving quality and innovating in uh, healthcare. And yes, how I see the market right now of fertility 
taking certain steps imply that we will take some risks. But not taking a risk right now, it will imply that we'll never satisfy the demand. So before we go improving the, before we go innovating, I want to see in this game of, of blackjack, let's call it, and that where we're hitting you one after another first, OBGYNs doing every step of the diagnostic process, then doing egg retrievals, then doing IUIs. Do you disagree with any of those? Do you- I, I think in general, all of these access conversations are glossing over one major issue, right? The issue with access does not just come down to how many REIs are graduating every year. There are other major roadblocks to access. So the three issues that I see with access are cost and affordability, even more than REIs, embryologists, okay? And then REIs. For us at SGF, our biggest issue as we're expanding in various markets is not necessarily finding doctors to put into the clinic. It's even more so finding embryologists, right? It takes about two to three years to train a good embryologist to do biopsies and ICSI, et cetera. So all of these conversations are revolving around how do we get more providers to do retrievals, to get more new patients in the door? But there's also roadblocks on the other end of that. And I'll talk about some of the ways that we are trying to address from those some of those roadblocks within our organization and, and why I wish other people would be doing the same. I, I'm happy to talk about that. But one of my, for example, when you were interviewing the mates that you were talking about access and cost, they don't take insurance. I have a a huge, huge issue with that. And so I think you cannot only talk about providers if you don't talk about what's our solution for costs and and embryologists. And a lot of the solution for costs is, well, hire general and do ends, and then you don't have to pay them as much as you do. By the way, some of my best friends in life our general OBGYNs who are unbelievable, amazing what they do. And so none of this discussion in any, in any way of doing on being a general OBGYN. I, I also think we should look at our other fields in our space. So I know some amazing generalists that are unbelievable surgeons. That doesn't mean that they can become UN oncologists. And so I think we should have a very clear discussion on what we need to do to expand more trained REIs in this country. And not only the role of OBGYNs, but also the role of APPs. For example, I do most of my own scans, which I know sounds a little archaic, but that's how I was trained. And I'm in New York and my patients want to see me and I like doing the ultrasounds. And I think the more ultrasounds you do, the better you are at retrieval. But I do think there's a role for APPs or advanced practice providers to do ultrasounds to do IUIs, even to manage IUI cycles. It doesn't even necessarily have to be a general OBGYN. I personally do not feel comfortable with a general OBGYN doing retrievals unless they've done thousands of thousands of retrievals or unless there's an REI physically on site. The CEO of Mate was saying, oh, we have five REIs on the board who are there by telemedicine. She also didn't mention who these people are, but I don't know what REI that I know would feel comfortable with the liability of being on a video walking an OBGYN through a complicated egg retrieval and someone that has fibroids, maybe someone that needs an abdominal retrieval. At SGF, we have a policy that if it's someone requires an abdominal retrieval because of body habitus or anatomy or fibroids, there have to be two MDs on site to do that together in the OR. So yes, 99% of retrievals are easy, but when they're hard, they're really hard. You can be one millimeter away from the iliac. I mean, I would not feel comfortable with an OBGYN handling case like that unless I was in the room with them. 
You will know those are retrievals in advance. So obviously you will not schedule them. To... Not if I'm not scanning them. Huh? Not if I'm not doing their ultrasound, right? Do you think that an OBGYN would not detect an, an ultrasound fibroid? I, I mean, I think that the OBGYNs are capable of doing that and much more surgery is sometimes more complicated than, than REIs, but that is a debate that we can have. But regarding the issue of REI and the access of cost, I think it is very clear that the lack of production of REI is related to the lack of decrease of cost of IVF. We actually have very high IVF costs because we don't have enough supply. And if you think about any other industry, even in healthcare, braces, I remember when I grew up, only the rich people had brace, braces. A lot of other plastic surgery, every single one of those procedures has been going down in price. A microwave was $600 like you buy for 30. The only thing that has going up is the IBF cost. And it's not only because of the physicians, it is because there is a duopoly on the pharmaceutical industry. There is other reasons that there is no competition, but if there is, and now with the consolidation of private equity, it actually will have even less competition that will uh, not decrease the price of access. So my point is that the correlation of access to cost is directly correlated with the lack of providers. Right. So how do we increase that? Right. So for example, we, so I'm part of Shade Group Fertility, which is a part of a, of a larger organization, U.S. Fertility. Right. We train, we graduate about six fellows a year. So we now run the NIH fellowship program, University of Colorado's program, University of South Florida. But how many of those are new fellowships and not like the University of Colorado was acquired by SGF. Jones was acquired right. by SGF. Not yeah. how, many, how many of them are new we need, fellowships? We need hundreds. We right, need hundreds. Right, but well, wait a second. Let me just finish what I'm saying, right? So we support those fellowship programs. We train those fellows. We fund those fellows, which I don't see any other non-academic program doing or offering to do. We would love to open more fellowships. For example, I'm here at SGF New York with my partner, Tomer Singer, who is the director, the residency director at Lenox Hill for almost 15 years, right? So we would love to do that. The problem is there are many hoops and ACGME requirements. You're required to, to be affiliated with an academic center, which for us in New York, everyone's already taken up. Everyone already has their own fellowship program and they don't want the competition, which is a whole other conversation. It's impossible as an REI in New York City to even get hospital privileges because they don't want to give you privileges because they don't want you competing with them, which is a whole other problem that should really be on the cover of the New York Times. But uh, that's the problem. We want to train Bella. We do. I can't speak for other organizations like CCRM or Kind Body or anybody else. We want to train fellows. We are training fellows. We are training embryologists. Since we took over the Jones program. We're expanding that training program. But these are the things that we need to be focusing on rather than taking shortcuts and hiring OBGYNs and training them to do what we do. But everybody's been saying that for years and not, and it still hasn't happened. We're still not adding more yeah. fellows. I, I don't think that it's taking shortcuts. It's thinking out of the box to rethink the model because the truth is, being very realistic, 
If we are currently doing 300,000 IVF cycles with 1,500 IVF doctors, and we require 3 million cycles in the country, when are we going to produce another 10,000 REIs? We want, period. Okay. I mean, we have to Where be realistic. Right. I, I think the main issue is that the fellowship programs are siloed within academic programs who have no interest in expanding or working with private practices to expand fellowships because they're perfectly comfortable in a situation that they're in, right? And so that's a major discussion that needs to happen. Yeah. And I'm still asking the embryology question because my main limit to increasing my cycle number is how many embryologists do I have in my lab? And to me, it's much harder to find an embryologist than it is to find an REI. And actually in that, I, I would say, uh, Griffin, to schedule a talk with Tony Anderson, who is our lab director and the main person, he has IBF Academy of IBF of USA, and that is going to be incorporated into our university. And basically he presented at the Pacific that after doing a two-month training in ICSI, the outcome of the ICSI is exactly the same as if somebody that has more than one year doing ICSI. He proved it. He has the data. It's not data that is just mentioned. It's data, solid data. So we are actually changing the way the training is happening. There is a hybrid training online and then there is in-person with actual cases. And I think that the academy can produce very good embryologists in approximately four months with all the training. Well, I'm not an embryologist. And this is what my embryologists are saying. You should also ask Michael Tucker and Jim Graham and, and maybe they can debate each other. How about that? My job as moderator is to keep this a little bit boring by preventing the 18 different topics from going and focusing on one. So I'm going to try and do that. I do want to come back to Dr. Brower's point about embryologists later because Dr. Storman afterwards texted me and said, I wish that I had brought that up too. Although now, no, I'm going to save my tangential thought for when we come back to that. I want to, and the duopoly of pharmacies and the fellowship programs, I want to come back to still what you are comfortable with the OBGYN being trained to do not and it sounds like okay they can do retrievals if an REI is physically in the room and that's like, yeah and then that defeats the purpose right because I'm still physically in the room I still have to physically be in the room I may as well do a retrieval <laughs> so, so so let's I, just I, I personally disagree that you don't require a REI to be present down the hall how about that not even I mean, not even there because an OBGYN in a simple case, which is what we want to select to give to them, they have the capacity to open that patient. They have the capacity to detect when the patient is splitting. They have the capacity to suture a cervical artery probably better than us. So now they have not done it. And as I mentioned, there are currently a lot of our REI's colleagues, when they started practicing, they have done less than 10 egg retrievals. That's what it is. If we are naive, if we don't think that that is happening, that we were learning on the trenches. And are you not satisfied that an OBGYN could address the complications in the way that? I fully, again, like many of my friends who are generalists are probably better surgeons than I am. 
I guess I don't understand what the the kind of it's almost a perseveration of um, Joanne, um, Joanne, up scaling of Joanne. Why is that? Because we have 90% of the market without cover. We have 90% of the market but that is not covered. Okay, so let's talk, why are they not covered? Why? Because A, lack of access financially, B, okay. lack, of, lack of competition because we don't produce enough REIs, and our boards have for 20 years spoke with both houses of their mouth saying that they wouldn't increase access and they have not done it because we have not produced more REIs because there is access to care. Like there are certain REIs that are in rural areas that they want to solve right now their practice and private equity will not buy it because oh, it doesn't provide a lot of uh, revenue there. So those are in insurance coverage is another one and that it is not mandatory. So all those are reasons, but the main reason, if you look at any healthcare issue, is a supply-driven market. The more suppliers you have, the bigger the market will be there. And we are not supply-driven. So I just want to take those points one at a time, right? So, and put the argument aside for a second, because one, let's, Let's talk about cost, for example. That's the first thing you mentioned. So the main issue with cost is lack of insurance coverage, right? If everyone had insurance coverage, everyone would have access. Is that accurate? Yeah, but insurance. yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Right. So that that we should be focusing on. If the if the if the if the insurance is given to everybody, not only the ones that work, then it will be covered. So if it is a universal Healthcare coverage, yes, your premise is valid. I'm from Israel originally. Everyone has coverage. Everyone has IBF coverage. But how does that supply? How does that solve your supply and demand issue, Paco? Right. If 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 we're if if we're only serving a quarter of the population, or, or actually not a quarter, a fraction of the population, and and that's that's covered, and we still have eight and ten week wait lists. Uh, how does how does ensuring more people increase access? I, I don't think so because you have much more demand, but you don't have more suppliers. Okay. So then let's talk about why are there wait lists? So we have, we have, I don't know, 40 something off down all different regions. We follow our wait lists very closely. We're not in any, we're in Colorado, Colorado Spring. We're not, we're not in the Midwest. So I have friends in Nebraska, I think she has a wait list of two or three months or something like that, which they can get their initial workup done with their OGN. And by the time they get to her, I think COVID has, change a lot. We can do a lot of virtual consults. To me, when, when I talk about access, someone's not going to open to, to financially support IDF lab to be able to argue to put an embryologist there, two minimum, two embryologists there because you need witnessing and all the staff that you need to staff a, a, an ASC, et cetera. You may have an ASC in a major city and you may have kind of satellite monitoring stations, if you will. And if I train someone, whether it's an ultrasonographer or a PA, it doesn't have to be a general OBGYN is my point. If I train a PA to do all the monitoring there, I think I have more than enough time to review those cycles. So that's why I don't know what, why specifically we're talking about the way to solve the access to care issue is train more OBGYNs. Because if I had someone doing monitoring and then coming for me to do retrievals and, 
and my partners to do retrievals and I can sit there and do virtual consults all day long. I don't see why, why this is an issue. I don't because think we can, we cannot do, we cannot do 2.7 million egg retrievals. We can't. 1,500 people cannot do 2.7 million egg retrievals. It's unreasonable. It's, uh, it's not possible. I do agree with you 100%. We open a, a satellite 100% run by a PA, 100%. She saw the patient, she's monitored, she sent them, we do the egg retrieval, we do the transfer. Could not agree with you more. And that, I think that we can set it up here as a basis for agreement that we can develop satellites where everything else, and we can start as a gradual point of view to start training those people to do the satellites. Now there's going to be a point that those satellites are going to saturate the egg retrieval bottleneck that will occur. And then we can discuss the next step. But I think that as a first step, we need to treat people that it's comfortable doing all the monitoring, all the counseling and tweaking the medication during the stimulation. So we agree that they can do the diagnosis. They can do some basic. So you want the generalist to do that? You want the generalist? No, I said, I said a PA or nurse practitioner or a generalist. It's okay. It's cheaper or it's less expensive if you use a, a PA. But now for an egg retrieval, I certainly will allow. In fact, there are plenty of OBGYNs out there, general OBGYNs that are doing egg retrievals as we speak. Yes. And I have managed their complications. I'm just saying. Have managed, I'm sure you have managed complications of REIs too. I have. I'm not saying there are not REIs out there and we've all had complications. But. Do they appear to be disproportionate to you or not? Do they, do you, does it appear anecdotally? Do you, does it seem that you're seeing I, more complications from OBGYNs? Three things like hyperstimulation syndrome. Absolutely. Because they haven't been trained and seen hundreds of thousands of Simulation cycles. And by the way, I totally agree with you, Paco. I was lucky enough to train at Cornell, where by the time I graduated, I saw more simulation cycles than most attendings see in a year, right? So I understand, which is another issue. Like there's fellowship programs out there that do 200 cycles a year. That's it. And they have two fellows. They should not have two fellows because those fellows aren't getting clinically trained. I mean, that's a whole other discussion even and, needs to be had. And that would be um, the second point of agreement, which is we agree that we can train all those people. The second to try to find common ground is that somehow we need to revisit how the people is being trained in fellowships because we're putting a lot of emphasis of 18 months or 20 months in research when 99% of the people come out and do IVF. Maybe we need to track some of the REIs, the researchers and That's the IVF. Like I was going to say that. I agree. So you, you have now two different tracks and you can produce in one year, a good REI fellow in a, that is going to do IBF because by that year they can do easily hundred retrievals, easily 50 transfers and seeing their share of complications and they can go on. So that's another compromise that I have no problem doing. But I think, it, it, and basically, that's one of the ideas of the university that we really need to create. And that's why we made it a nonprofit because we don't want to 
anybody to mention that we're doing this for profiting. We are doing this for the firm belief that we think that the United States do not have the health care that they deserve at the level of fertility. We have 90% and we need to change that. And how we do it, we can obviously have the debate and, and this, but we need action. Griffin, the fellowship question, the training. So at SGF, we require anyone onboarding. I only have to do two weeks, but we require six weeks out of fellowship. You spend it in Rockville, you're doing hundreds of, of, of cycles, um, minimum 100 transfers before you can do anything in any of our labs. And so I, I unfortunately, some fellows need a mini fellowship. We haven't made a business out of it, but maybe we should. <laughs> but, well, but that's in answer to your question out of, of why this issue is, I, I, I'm not qualified to argue that it's the most present. Maybe that maybe Dr. Ardundo is are arguing that this is the most important thing that we can do. I'm simply observing that it is one thing that we can do out of many reasons. And the reason why we stalemate in politics very often, we're trying to improve education. Well, the teachers need to, the, the teachers need to do this. Well, we can't do that until the parents do that. Well, and then you, when you go from one issue to another, just nothing ends up getting done. So it's like, okay, we take the issues that we have in front of us and try to unpack each of them. I'm definitely not solving the duopoly of the, of the pharmaceutical companies here. And the embryologists, I do want to talk to more, but it's also another issue. Could it be more important than this one? That's arguable. But this, at least the, the number of fellowship programs in the country is another issue, but I'm not a bog and 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 they still nobody still suggested an abog person for me to talk to to do an entire episode soup to nuts of what it would take to build it. find me someone who's somebody listening find me that person because i'm but, trying to find the same answer <laughs> but what's happening right now is that there yeah. are people training obj generalist obg wans it sounds like we we have some agreement on what they can do some disagreement on uh, the level of oversight needed and the and the likelihood of complications that come from retrievals. What about the diagnostic piece? Not and what about OBGYNs doing IUIs? So I think IUI. So I, I would I would the first we're talking about the diagnostic piece. So the initial and again I am in New York City where I, I treat a very different kind of patient population. I very rarely see a bread and butter fertility patient. By the time the patient is sitting in front of me, they've cycled at four other centers and show up with their like finder of medical records. And so I don't see kind of the bread and butter. I have a lot of friends who are generalists who want to send patients to me and in the interim, they're kind of doing the workup. So I do feel like one thing that would definitely help is train is first of all, increasing REI education in general in OBGYN residency, right? OBGYN residency is four years. I spent a ton of time in antepartum learning all the MFM stuff. GUN oncology was at Cornell. The very I also did my residency at Cornell, very surgical program. I I went into OGU, went to do GUN oncology, and then along the other lines of the spectrum. But I spent so much time in GUN on. I wanted to do REI, and I spent three weeks in REI. And this is someone who actually wants to do it. So you can imagine the resident that doesn't care. So the OGUN's graduating programs right now, residency programs really know very, very little about REI. So we have residents here rotate with us in New York all the time from various hospitals. And, and the first step is to just teach them the basic workup. What does it take to make a baby? How do you talk to a patient about it? 
normal sperm, open orphan tubes, a normal uterus to implant, normal ovaries with normal numbers of eggs and genetically competent eggs, right? Just basic conversations about the ingredients, doing the workup, right? That automatically takes so much off of my plate. And so by the time they're coming to me, they're already kind of packaged up of, okay, here's the basic workup. Also doing the preconceptual genetic testing so that they're all kind of set up. So I'm totally comfortable with an OBGYN doing those parts of things. I'm even comfortable with an OBGYN managing IUI cycles. For example, as long as they're monitored cycles, I'd actually rather have an OBGYN working under me, stimulating patients and actually monitoring them than just randomly giving them clomid like it's candy, like we see all the time, right? And you don't even know how many follicles are growing. And even an OBGYN or a PA or, or an MP doing an IUI at Cornell, which is very tightly managed. I mean, fellows can't even scan follicles that are over 13 millimeters, right? <laughs> when I was a fellow, unless you were a senior fellow and very experienced in Ultown, but the NPs and the PAs would be the ones doing IUI. So that's, that's very low risk. I have no problem with that. It's really when it gets more into the, it's very important for me to counsel a patient on what IVF is, the pros and cons of it, the risks and benefits, the possible outcomes and complications, right? Because it's all about setting expectations. And I feel like we know all the possible outcomes. Genetic testing, which is becoming more and more complex, the pros and cons that are constantly changing every few months we're learning more and more. And specifically when there's failures, talking and counseling patients through that, we know as RIs what happens in the lab, most fellowship programs, you do spend time in the lab. And so those things that take, it does take a fellowship program to learn all of those things, thin lining, recurrent implantation failure, recurrent pregnancy loss, all of the things that we're still well-versed in speaking in. So those are the cases that I want to manage. I, I feel comfortable with an OBGYN managing a simulation cycle, but I also feel comfortable with a PA running through that dosing with me, which takes five seconds for me to do. And I'm even comfortable to be doing the IUI. So that's why I don't, I don't think it even requires training general OBGYN. I think an REI can handle doing more cases if we, if we're set up in a more efficient way. I also think one thing that ha we haven't brought up here, which is huge for efficiency is AI, right? So we, we at US Fertility, are, have, are investing a lot of time and money and research dollars into exploring various ways that artificial intelligence can be used. I think one of the best ways it can be used is, and this is for everything from doing an ultrasound, like you can have an MA, take an ultrasound probe, put it in the vagina, and you get a readout of every follicle and, and what sizes objectively, because there's always subjectivity when you're talking about measurement. So something as little as that, to extrapolating it to dosing of patients, right? And algorithms of looking at hundreds of thousands of cycles and predicting even based on prior cycles that that patient's done, when you should trigger, how you should trigger, et cetera. And also into the lab of grading embryos, et cetera. So I think, I think where the investments should be is training more REIs, which is complicated because that involves ABOG and ACG and all those things. We've got to find a way to do it training more embryologists and artificial intelligence to make our lives more efficient. I, I, you know, actually, All of that's going to solve our problem. Let, let, you want to start I, a business, Paco? I'm just kidding. 
No, no, I, I think that we agree. Don't invite him. Okay. He will. He will by the, he'll start a new one by the end of this podcast. If uh, uh, 99% of the things I agree because I agree that we only as uh, OBGYNs rotate one month and issue is when they pressure you to take vacations in our state, in our REI, uh, just one month or two months, the whole 48 months of, of training. I do agree that artificial intelligence is the future and obviously there are already companies out there like we were just mentioning and all that. I think the key difference and, and we agree that we need to train REIs perhaps in a more expedited manner or in two different tracks. We agree that we can utilize nurse practitioners, physician assistants in order to increase efficiency in the system. All that. I think the only difference that we have is that I feel strongly that a OBGYN can handle an egg retrieval and obviously she does not. But in order to dive into that particular question, let's think of other examples within our industry that you have birthing centers and you have delivery centers. And in the birthing center, you're not going to send a patient with a previous C-section, preeclampsia, and uh, diabetes to be delivered there. No, you want to send the straightforward case that will have very unlikely a reason to have a complication. And if that thing arrives, you have a system in place to send it to the delivering hospital, which is rare. So it is the same thing in fertility where you can put the simpler cases, especially those that are in rural areas, in markets B's and C's, where a trained OBGYN can do the retrieval. And we don't know what it's going to be in the future, because now in the future, you might get egg retrieval. You send the egg to a place where they, they send the sperm, they do the, the embryo, and now you send the embryo back to the place. And anybody can do an embryo transfer. I mean, that could be a potential business model for the future, right? Where you do egg, egg retrievals in one place, you freeze the egg, you freeze the sperm, you send it to a very uh, concentrated laboratory, and you create the embryo, you send it back, and then you transfer the embryo. That is possible. And now you increase access. One point that was given to me, and I want you to opine on this, Dr. Brow, is Dr. Matt Ratzloff emailed me after one of the earlier episodes and said the only way to really know is to the effectiveness and the safety is, and if I'm paraphrasing your point, Dr. Ratzloff, you can come on and do your own show. But he was talking about the only way to really know is to do a randomized blinded trial of of outcomes and of safety. And because I'm not a clinician, because I'm paraphrasing Dr. Reslaw's words, how would that work? How would we, would we really be able to compare the the outcomes from a board certified endocrinologist versus the the training that's being done? No IRB will ever prove that study, and I don't really see patients signing up for that study. <laughs> Personally, I wouldn't do that study. I mean, I think it's I I I still am having a hard time wrapping my brain around this conversation, even being a conversation and the word upskilling, which I had never heard that word before a year, 18 months ago. I adopted the word to distinguish it from fellowship training. No, I understand, but. Well, what, happened, what happens in any other country in the world? In, in Spain, 
which has been a leader of fertility for years, Spain and France, in Italy, in any other place, there's no fellowship. They finish and they go through a certificate or they get a mentoring. I don't know if in Israel there is a fellowship. Is there a fellowship in Israel? But they're, yes, but they're, they're also required to continue practicing general OBGYN and to take call because it's a, it's a socialized system. So you, okay. They so, see so, their patients after hours. They do new patient consults like at 11 p.m. But, but in order to do an REI, do you have to go through a fellowship? You practice, yeah. yeah it's, I don't know if it's an official fellowship, but you're definitely certified in fertility. All these things that you're mentioning, they're still training programs. And they're not six-week training programs. I mean, it's years of training. So there's no event. But at the end of the day, it's not a new fellowship program, right? Did you believe that a really good general OGN should be should be cutting out cancer? No, but I would not compare. I would not compare an egg retrieval with the level of complexity of of a surgery of cancer. Would you compare the liability as similar? I mean, don't you feel like our field has the highest liability? Pretty much of any field? I don't think so. I disagree with that. The the premiums of REIs are very low. Not premiums. I mean, I mean, because the liability, that's always based on liability. The liability is based on how likely are you to be sued. And, and the premiums of fertility are very low. Very low. I mean, compared to high risk OB, those are high. I, I feel like what we do and the counseling we offer and the potential issues in the lab are extremely high liability. And so I personally would want to manage those liabilities myself rather than managing someone else's liability. We can bring Dr. Katz on for a a liability episode to examine that. But Paco, I want to put something on you because a lot of this conversation might be overlooking second and third order consequences with regard to access to care that come from training OBGYNs. Like, I don't know what their overall workload and wait lists look like right now, but I don't think most OBGYNs are sitting around waiting for new patients. I think they have caseloads and workloads that are, are pretty full. Well, I could, that it could be an assumption that needs to be tested, but either way, I think it's one we're, we're overlooking here. So if we solve for access to care with regard to fertility treatment, by bringing more OBGYNs in to do some of the purview of the REI, then aren't we creating a shortage of care somewhere else in the OBGYN sphere? I, I, I don't know the, the numbers on the uh, OBGYN, how many are needed. I think that overall, if you look at the statistics by 2045, we're going to have like 70,000 uh, uh, shortage of physicians in the United States, no matter what specialty you're talking about, because again, we're not producing enough. The, the medical schools are not producing enough physicians, but I don't know specifically to your question. I, I don't know. We may, but the, the point here is that basically the big disagreement that we have is if an area, if an OBGYN after doing 50 or 100 supervised egg retrievals, if it is not capable of doing egg retrievals for an IVF clinic. My answer is yes, if that person, and I don't know what the number is, 20, 50, 100, which in certain clinics, that person can be trained in two months. After doing that, can that person do egg retrievals for you? Absolutely. Absolutely can. 
in fact, they're doing it right now. I guess my, my question goes back to Griffin, the point he just made, which I still don't see how the specific concept of upskilling and UN solves, solves our issues. Because who's going to, who are going to take these jobs? And we already see that happening. Our residents who, brought, who wanted to do REI, who didn't match for whatever reason, and now this is what they do. And then they get to put on Google that they're a fertility specialist and market themselves in that way. And now you're going to run into a shortage of generalists, of which there's already a shortage of generalists. Generalists, definitely in this area, I can barely get a patient in to see an OBGYN. So this is a much larger problem. Personally, I would rather train APPs to do ultrasounds and help me with monitoring and make efficient so that I can stay in my lane and do what I need to do and not take away, you know, from any other specialties who, who have their own issues with, with access. And the other big concern I have, it's creating a two-tier system of care, which we already have in this country, clearly, right? And we see it with cancer, for example, right? The main cancer center, if you have cancer, you want to go to the best place, Sloan, you want to go to Texas, MD Anderson, yeah, there's several big centers in the country you want to go to. You're not going to find it in small town USA. I mean, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, so it's not like I grew up with so so much access around me, right? And so I do worry about giving one part of the population kind of a watered down version of what we do and one part of a, a population an elevated version of what we do. The argument against that is, well, you're giving one part of the population no option and other populations the best option. But there's something to me just wrong about just because someone lives in a certain place or doesn't have enough money to afford the best, that, that you're potentially giving them a less safe experience. And, and well, a, I, I disagree with term. We don't know if it's less safe. And I would say, we don't know if it's less safe. And I would say that if we take a risk, we may fail. But if we don't take any risk, for sure, we will fail to cover everybody. I'm happy to take risks, but I'd rather do it not with upscaling of the land. Well, okay. before, what kind of risk would you like to take? Well, what I mentioned before, I'm happy to set up, set up satellite monitoring clinics and- That's a little risk. We have proven that. That works. Right. It delivers the same actual care. So that can work. I still so believe to solve our problem. There, there are randomized control trials where nurse practitioners do embryo transfers versus REIs in England, randomized control trials, exactly the same pregnancy rate. Exactly the same pregnancy rate. Nurse practitioners in, 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 in England doing embryo transfers versus REIs. So, okay. So do you feel like we should even have any fellowship programs at all? I mean, I'm sorry? everyone could be trained, then what's the point of fellowship programs if everything can be, everyone can be trained to do Exactly the same thing if you have any degree or any letter behind your, behind your name. Well, when you go, now you're talking about medical education. That's a very important point. So the traditional medical education is based on pedagogy, which is treating kids. Ped pediatry, pediatry, that's training kids. The new, and we don't learn like kids. We learn by adults, which is underwatching. And that is by doing things. And you can go and look at medical uh, uh, education. And the best way now is not to saturate people with theory and books and stuff, but is to give a minimal basis 
and do things and do things and do things. So that's why I would say that I will feel very comfortable if I give good basis to an OBGYN and I will train that OBGYN with supervision to do 58 retrievals. It's an experienced surgeon already. I will feel as comfortable as a fellow that sometimes just finished 10 or 20 egg retrievals. He has a lot of information, but he does not have the experience or rather the ability to solve a problem. I am talking specifically about this task. I'm not saying handling all the things. I'm talking about this task. I, I feel very comfortable doing it. So I'm gonna, I want to let each of you conclude how you want to. Before we do that, I'm going I'm to give you each an open thought to conclude on. But let's hit the embryologist question for a second, which I'm, this is completely anecdotal, but we have strategies based on clinics' different needs and capacities. I'm talking about my firm as a creative and biz dev firm, and it seems to me like clinicians hit their capacity first, and then embryologists hit their capacity. It seems to me, this is very anecdotal, that across the board, is generally speaking as possible that embryologists really, we, we hit that lab capacity sometime after the COVID reopening, sometime in September of 20, or in the fall of 2020. And so, but so it, it seems to me like they're pretty neck and neck. Maybe the REI bottleneck is tighter, but they're, they're probably equal now, but why not solve the embryologist problem first, Paco? Or is, is this, is the embryologist how is it not more pressing than the REI issue? Well, I think that you have to also look at AI, not that embryologists will be replaced, but there is a lot of, there is in the pipeline, three to four companies looking at doing the embryology in a box. So, and the other thing is not only producing embryologists, but producing embryologies in a way that is lean managed. For example, right now, everybody's checking their embryos in day one and day three and day five. Do you really need to do that? Not me. We don't check them on day three. But we, we used to, right? One, three, and five. Now there's people not even checking them until day five or you put them in the embryoscope and they just look at it. That is working efficiently without changing the effectiveness. So one of the things here on, on, on lean management is that you have those two levers, outcome and you have uh, cost. So how can we produce the same outcome with less cost? Or how can we remain with the same cost and improve the outcome? And here on the embryology question, you may train, but actually they might not need as much in five years because AI may catch up with us. Now you have a lot of people sitting there. I don't think AI will catch up that bad. I mean, I think it's moving fast, but I still think we'll also always need embryology. Yeah. For us in New York, I'll tell you that we are, bottleneck has always been the lab. And so we really had to hire, I mean, now we have seven embryologists here, but we, we really had to staff up and it's, and it's tough. And so that was always our bottleneck. And that was the bottleneck at Cornell. And that was the bottleneck at NYU. I mean, everywhere I've been, that's been the bottleneck because in REI, I can always add another mutation slot. I don't mind working hard. I don't mind seeing the patients and adding on to my schedule. I have no issue with that. But the lab, I, I and the lab is safety. It's, I want my lab to be happy, obviously, and feel like everything's being done safely. So I do think the lab is 
almost a better, bigger, if not the same bottleneck. Anecdotally, I don't see REIs leaving REI. I'm seeing embryologists leave the lab, which is crazy to me because they're so in demand. We have embryologists applying for jobs at my firm, a biz dev and marketing firm, because they just don't physically want to be. And I think the lab. send me their CV. <laughs> they don't want to. They don't want to be in the lab. They don't want to. They, these are 20 somethings that don't want to, they don't want to work long hours, one, and two, they don't want to be in a physical location that's a 10 by 12 room for, for however long. I'm going to let each, I'm going to let each of you conclude. Dr. Ardonda, let's start with you and then we'll go to Dr. Brower. How would you like to conclude your point? Yeah, we'll start with you, Paco. Okay. Uh, I mean, just basically, I, I, we believe in the democratization of IVF. We believe that every single human has the right to be produced and that it's a international and universal human right. We believe that we are falling short in the United States and that we have to think out of the box to rethink and reshape the model of how we practice medicine without ever compromising quality, without ever compromising safety. And we believe that we've been practicing fertility the same way for 40 years, and it is time to rethink how we do it. We believe that part of that is to consider training physician assistants and nurse practitioners to do some of the tasks. And uh, if we want to meet that demand of 3 million IVF cycles, we ought to train other people to do egg retrievals. And we believe that OBGYNs are a good candidate to do that. Now, how would you like to conclude? So I agree with most of what Dr. Arndondo has said today. I do think we have a major access problem. I also believe that reproduction is a human right and everyone should have access to it. I don't think that the problem can be distilled and easily solved by one issue of training OBGYNs to do egg retrieval. I think, as I mentioned before, the issues of access involve cost, providers and embryologists. And the only way we're going to solve those problems is by increasing training programs, which is the long game and in the short term becoming more efficient through advanced practice providers and artificial intelligence and technology. You're both very good sports for coming on. You're both also advancing this discussion in the field by being able to do so in good faith. And so I appreciate both of you doing that. And not hopefully we can use this as some leverage to get somebody bringing ABOG to come in and do an episode about what it would be to accredit a REI fellowship program from soup to nuts. Thank you, Dr. Arredondo. Thank you, Dr. Brower for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.